Welcome to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and KRDP 90.7 FM. Later in the show, Deanna Baer will tell us about We Are Healers, an organization that inspires American Indian youth to see themselves as future healers. And we'll chat with Dorothea Litson, owner of Litson Ranch, providing all natural grass-fed beef that is flavorful with no antibiotics or growth hormones added. But first, Susan Levy talks with Justin Hungiva, Resource Development Manager for the Hopi Education Endowment Fund. I'm Susan Levy, and on the phone with us today is Justin Hungiva, and he's the Resource Development Manager for the Hopi Education Endowment Fund. Welcome, Justin. It's an honor to have you on the show and talk to you again. Hello, Susan. Thank you for having me, and you did a great job pronouncing my last name. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Before we get started, please tell us about yourself and your journey with the Hopi Education Endowment Fund, and also where you're from and your indigenous heritage. Sure. My my name is Justin Hangiba. I am a uh, member of the Hopi tribe. I'm from the village of Munkapi. My clan is uh, Horn Clan, or Piekiswungwa. Um, my my journey, um, I, Susan, I think when I met you, I, I was still down at Arizona State University as a graduate student, got a bachelor's and master's degree in American Indian Studies at ASU. And then from there, I uh, went to the University of Arizona to work with their Indian Sense of Medicine program. And then home came calling. And so I made the journey back home to my home reservation on the Hopi Reservation in 2017. And since then, I've been working for the Hopi Education Endowment Fund. Oh my gosh, Justin, you're a sun devil and a wildcat? I, I am. It's, it's well, uh, believe this or not, and uh, I, I'm a little too young to, to have this credential, but I'm very proud of it. Actually, my oldest daughter is set to graduate from the University of Arizona with a bachelor's degree in uh, pharmacy this upcoming spring, spring 2023. And our second oldest daughter is actually attending Arizona State University studying English. So I got a a house divided in my home. (laughs) That's exactly what I was going to say. Yes, one of those. Well, congratulations on uh, both of your kids in college. That's awesome. And the one graduating from pharmacy school. That's great. Thank you. Um, Okay, so let's start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Hopi Education and Endowment Fund is, what they do, who it's for, and all of the information? Sure. And so the Hopi Education Endowment Fund was created in 2000 for the sole purpose to grow and safeguard a source of funding. So for generations of Hopi to be able to receive financial support to earn a college degree, but in addition to providing college uh, financial assistance that we also do provide community grants locally uh, for organizations, uh, businesses on the Hopi Reservation that would like to help within the community as far as educational attainment. And so we're very proud that since 2000 that we've actually administered over $12 million in educational scholarships while still maintaining a pretty healthy amount within, within our endowment. And so I believe that that 12 million has helped over 500 Hopi students to achieve bachelor's, master's, graduate degrees. And so we are located in Kikotsmovi, Arizona, and our, we have a staff of five. And our executive director, who is a, for, is a former board, of, uh, board regent, Dr. Luann Leonard, she is very proud that all of our staff are members of the Hopi tribe. And so she likes to say this phrase, for Hopi, by Hopi, and so we definitely work hard to be able to provide all of the assistance for our people. Wow, $12 million and five hundred that is outstanding. And what a difference you've made. I mean, I bet you sleep really well at night knowing what a difference you're making to the community. That's awesome. Thank, thank you, Susan. And with, with, a, with a staff of five, we actually don't sleep too well at all because uh, as you can imagine, a, a skeleton crew doing so much work, but we definitely take pride in the work that we do for our people. That's awesome. Wow. I'm super impressed. Um, okay, I got a question for you. So if you've got somebody just starting out, you know, in high school or thinking about pursuing a higher pursuing a higher education, what advice do you have? Is it important to go ahead or um, should they be thinking about it at an earlier age in middle school or elementary school? I, I definitely 
encourage young people that are thinking about college to think about it as soon as you can. And by that, I don't mean that they need to decide on what type of program that they want to pursue, but at least start thinking about college, start thinking about what the cost of college is, understand that financial assistance is available, such as what we provide, but also understanding where to go about seeking that financial assistance, because back in my U of A days when I used to speak to high school students, I, I, I would share with students often that, you know, the cost of tuition is constantly going up. And so I think that for an undergraduate degree, the cost of that is anywhere between forty to $50,000. And most people, our parents or those that take care of us, that they don't have that simply lying around to be able to afford our college tuitions. And so it's it's important to start thinking about at least where you could get financial assistance, what some of those financial scholarships out there are merit-based. And so meaning that uh, having good grades helps you to get those scholarships, but not all of them are an understanding that, you know, even if your grades in middle school or high school aren't that great, that you still have just as much opportunity as excelling students that are in middle or high school to be able to uh, receive some of this funding so that you could be able to go to school. And I think that for students that are in high school, School, especially those that are around their freshman and sophomore year, that's when a lot of this research really begins and really start thinking about what it is that you want to be, because then when you start to think about what it is that you want to be, then you start looking for schools that have those programs to be able to research and learn about what schools might be able to provide to help fuel your dreams that you have as far as what it is that you want to do. And then just getting starting to get serious about school, because then all of the study habits, all of the doing your homework discipline, that all starts in high school, and that it's best to have a lot of those skill sets underneath you by the time you get to college. But definitely, I, I think, especially for our, our Native people out there, don't get hung up on this term called the traditional pathway, because working for the U of A and ASU, I very, I've learned that as far as our Native people go, that the non-traditional route tends to be the more traditional route for a lot of us because we come from a different type of community. Our outlook on life is very much different that uh, duties to your community is still um, a virtue that we hold strong here on the reservation. And so, you know, life happens, life happens. And so when life happens, don't let it get you down, but continue to strive for your dreams to pursue a college education. So when we talk about, you know, thinking about college when you're in high school and, and your educational career, um, how does and how does that fit into the Hopi Education and Endowment Fund? Do they start that when they're thinking about going to college or actually when they're in college and applying? So tell us more about what what the Hopi Education and Endowment Fund, how it works, the process and things like that. Oh, sure. And so we do provide scholarships for students that are entering college. And so students that are starting to graduate their senior year from high school, once they apply to uh, the colleges of their choices, once they get accepted and are enrolled, uh, from there, then they can begin applying for um, our financial aid that we provide. Although, and you know, I know that we're short on time, but you know, there's a very, very, um, I guess, uh, set up process that that how how it works with us because we do work with another program called the Hopi Tribe Grants and Scholarships Program and so the Hopi Tribe Grants and Scholarships they're the program that actually disseminates the applications they're the ones that take the applications they're the ones that process them and then they make the recommendations as far as students that are eligible to receive funding and then they send us a list of those names and they give us the recommended amounts that they'd like to fund them for and so then we in turn provide uh the money and so we send the money over to them so i've always talked about the heath and the htgsp as a partnership almost like a, a married couple type of relationship that in the traditional hopi way that the male husbands that they're responsible for planting the corn, cultivating the corn. And so when they're in their cornfield, that they're responsible for that corn. But as soon as that corn's harvested, they bring it back home and they hand it over to their wife. Then the wife becomes responsible for that corn. And then it begins, it becomes her duty 
to turn that corn into something that's going to be beneficial for all people of the household. So in that way, the HEAF and the HTGSP work together to be able to make sure that the funding that the HEAF generates goes to the students that need it. I like the analogy. Um, okay, so tell me, where does the Hopi Education and Endowment Fund, or HEAF, where do you get your funding? And so we receive our funding primarily through the endowment. And so the, the endowment is one large bank account to simplify it uh, as simple as possible. And, you know, I make this joke when I talk to students about the HEAF because all of Indian country knows this term called interest. But for most of us, interest is a very bad word because that when we graduate from high school, we all obtain credit cards and we max them out. And then so in turn, we have to pay that $5,000 back, $10,000 back, whatever it is. But on top of that, we have to pay the interest back. But our Heath endowment, the word interest is very positive because uh, today in 2022, our endowment is valued at just a little bit under $30 million. And so you got $30 million sitting in a bank account and it generates interest. And so the interest from that endowment is what we use to operate. And so I actually just gave a presentation so a lot of this information is fresh on my head. The other day that annually our operation bu budget probably functions on just a little bit over a million dollars a year. But the fortunate thing of that little bit over a million dollar operation budget that about 70% of that money goes into our programs. And so 70% of just a little bit over a million dollars goes into scholarships. It goes into our Imagine grants. And so we're able to help our people through that. But in, to help our endowment to be strong and to continue to build and build that the HEAF, we are fundraisers. And so we are constantly scouring the country, looking for donors, looking for individuals that have an affinity, that have a passion for higher education, that have a passion for college access, that have a passion for helping underserved communities. And in turn, my primary job is to share the story of our organization, to share the story of our people, to share the story of our college students. So that way, if there are individuals out there with philanthropic intentions, and that they feel that the Heath is an organization to support, then they make those personal donations to our organization. And so in that way, we're able to continue to strengthen and build our endowments. Wow, I'm still stuck on the 30 million. That's a huge amount. <laughs> Congratulations to you all. Thank you. Thank you. So I think, um, I know when you're talking about raising money and, and uh, talking to individuals that have a vested interest in um, and Hopi and Education. I think you have an event coming up. Is that correct? We do. We do. And, and so on September 16th and 18th, for the first time, we're, hold, we're, we're hosting something that we're calling the Heath Virtual Run. And the purpose of the run, we feel that it's going to serve uh, two functions. One, of course, helping with our fundraising, but two, for anybody that knows anything about the Hopi communities, that Hopi is, uh, we're, we're very much, uh, running is very much built with, into our culture. And so running not only within our culture, culture, but historically has kind of been this big thing that we have a lot of pride in. And so, for example, and I, I really hope I, I, I get this right because I know I got it wrong before, but the, we, we actually, the Hopi tribe does have a past, a former Olympian. And so Olympic runner Louis Diwanima ran the Olympics in Stockholm, Sweden, and won a silver medal in the 10,000 meter Olympics. And so Hopis, we like to share that story about Louis Diwanima. And we, we like to share it because it demonstrates the strength of our Hopi runners. And then in addition to that, another feat that we're very much proud of is that our local high school, our Hopi Junior Senior High School, that the boys cross country program at one point was able to achieve 20 uh, actually, I'm sorry, I think it was 27 consecutive state cross-country titles. And so that's a, a national record for a team to be able to win a state title 27 years in a row. And so we're very proud 
of the running heritage and the history from that comes from our Hopi communities. And so a testament to the strength of our runners. In addition to that too, where it's also a testament that some of our students were able to use running as a way to be able to get into college because you have colleges and universities all throughout the nation that do recruit our uh, high school Hopi runners. And so a lot of students have said that running has helped them to be able to get into the door of colleges and universities. So I like how it all ties in together, the upcoming event along with uh, the runners and then scholarships. That's awesome. Um, So finally, how can listeners get more information about the Hopi Education Endowment Fund, the upcoming run, and how can they contact you? Yes. And so listeners out there that are interested in the run, you can find more information on our website at HopiEducationFund.org. And so that's H-O-P-I-E-N-D-O-W. M-E-N-T-F-U-N-D dot org. And then so there's that'll be information that you can also find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. All, I believe, are at Hopi Education. And so if you go on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, search, search Hopi Education, you should be able to find us. Thank you so much, Justin. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I hope you get I get to see you when you come back down to Phoenix. Thanks again. Thank you for the invitation, Susan. I really appreciate it. Up next, Deanna Baer will tell us about We Are Healers. Support for KRDP 90.7 FM comes in part from Native Health, with two locations in Phoenix, 4041 North Central Avenue Building C near the corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road, and at 2423 West Dunlap Avenue. Native Health is also located in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, WIC, and wellness services for the urban Native American community. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org. Native Talk Arizona returns after this song. You are listening to Super Nation by Vince Fontaine's Indian City.
walk on my shoes Say the word like I do Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and KRDP 90.7. I'm Susan Levy, and on the phone with us today is Deanna Baer, and she's the Operations Director of We Are Healers, an organization that inspires American Indian youth to see themselves as future healers through the stories of American Indian role models. Hi, Deanna. It's an honor to have you on our show today. Hi. Thank you for speaking with me and learning more about our organization. Well, we're excited to learn more. So before we get started, please tell us about yourself and your journey with We Are Healers. I am a Lenape woman from Nescohoning, Pennsylvania. My family is from this area for many generations, and I'm honored to call these my ancestral lands. I've been the operations director with We Are Healers for about a year now, and I've been in the nonprofit sector for over 12 years. And most of that experience encompasses operations, program development, and advancement for marginalized communities. So can you tell us a little bit about your indigenous heritage? Sure. So I am Lenape from Pennsylvania. Um, one of my ancestors is Elizabeth Miller. And I also am Shawnee and Penobscot descent. So Eastern Woodland through and through. <laughs> Okay. All right. So let's start with the basics. What is We Are Healers? Uh, we Are Healers was founded in 2012 by Dr. Eric Brot, And our mission is that we inspire American Indian and Alaska Native youth to see themselves as future healers through the stories of American Indian and Alaska Native role models. And to this end, we endorse healthy, active lifestyles and encourage youth to harness the strength of their tribal healing tradition as they explore educational opportunities. So can you tell me a little bit um, about the different programs that you've got? Our current programs are our fellowship and alliance program. The fellowship program builds and grows this community and cultivates fellows' existing social media talent and connections and provides them mentorship and professional development opportunities. Our alliance program improves access to academic enrichment and mentorship opportunities for Native youth. And this program directly increases Native recruitment into the respective alliance member organization through conversation of best practices on recruitment and retention. So I know that when I was looking at your website, and you guys do amazing work, um, I was really interested in the core values and the key strategies. And so can you tell us like why and how you aim to increase uh, Native Americans into health professions? Our core values and key strategies, it's a, a multi-pronged approach. So we inspire, advise, and connect. We inspire Native youth to pursue health careers and to achieve their greatest potential. We advise health profession schools and programs on best practices to recruit and retain Native students. 
We connected Native youth to enrichment opportunities to achieve their health career dreams. And we aim to increase Native youth into health professions as every minority group has seen increases in students attending health or medical school since 1980, except for Native Americans. And only 0.56% of Native physicians represented active physicians in 2016. And why do you think that is? Um, I believe that there's an issue of, of lack of representation in the healthcare sphere. There's these barriers of lack of resources, education, and overall lack of empowerment, which is a complete disservice to our community and our aspirations of being healers. So do you think that it's important to start with possibly the younger youth and get them start thinking about their career and going into health professions, like either middle school or high school? Absolutely. We've made intentional efforts to replace this dominant narrative about our people in mainstream society. So we do primarily cater to youth ages 14 to 24. However, the community needs are different. And so we really pride ourselves as being a resource for all audiences. And I can't recommend enough that families start um, empowering their youth even before they're 14. So have your programs evolved in trying to reach the younger youth, or what kind of strategies have you been using? So I would say since the last year that I've been here, our programs are evolving to include the younger youth. So looking at middle school and even elementary school, um, we notice that these the nuances of the pathway to medicine um, is very imperative when it comes to targeting that younger audience. What have you seen change during COVID? I do know that more people are applying to medical school. Are you seeing more Native Americans apply or thinking about applying to medical school? Uh, What I've seen personally change during COVID is the awareness of what our community needs to experience health equity. And the answers to that to create a legacy rests within our communities. So there is an increase in interest of pursuing medicine. COVID impacted our community so strongly and being that we are inherently resilient, I've seen youth take that negative impact and use it to fuel their desire for change. So do you have any favorite success stories out of the last year or two that you've been there? I would say every part of our impact is a success story, quite frankly. I receive messages on our social media platform consistently with extreme gratitude for the work that we do, even if it's sharing a story of a medical professional from the same tribal nation. As long as we continue planting the seed of empowerment, we are successful. So where are you all thinking you're going to head in the future? What kind of, are you doing any programs or services or do you have any events planned? We will be recruiting our next season of junior fellows. Um, and now that we've, we're in peak administration season for medical institutions, there will be an influx in our aligned services, which includes those elements of workforce development and best practices. We have a lot of partnerships and collaboration and brainstorming in the work that reaches a, a national level. So we definitely have some program development in the works. And finally, how can our listeners learn more about We Are Healers and how can they contact you? They can visit our website, and we are also extremely active on social media. And both of our, our, our contact information is on the website and social media. And what is your website? It is www.wearehealers.org. And are you on Instagram and Facebook? Yes, we are. And both of those handles are We Are Healers as well. And I have another quick question. Anything else you'd like us to know about We Are Healers? I would like to actually say to any of the listeners, and this is coming from, you know, our narrative at We Are Healers, is that if you feel that you want to make a change and you know that you are a healer, lean into that power and follow that journey because we are an active resource for you and there is an entire community out there who will support your journey. I think that's the best bottom line out there. Um, Thank you for so much for taking time to talk to us today, Deanna. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Up next, we'll chat with Dorothea Litson, owner of Litson Ranch. Support for KRDP 90.7 FM comes in part from Native Health. 
with two locations in Phoenix, 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C near the corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road, and at 2423 West Dunlap Avenue. Native Health is also located in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. Native Health's Family Health Advocates can help you enroll, renew, or update your access information. This can be done in person or on the phone or on Zoom, days, nights, or weekends. It's fast, easy, and can make a difference in keeping your health care coverage. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org. Native Talk Arizona will return after this song. You are listening to The It Girl by Ray Zaragoza. I could tell I was living in a world that wasn't made for brown-skinned girls. Just you wait, it'll be your turn. And in the mirror I would say to her Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and KRDP 90.7. I'm Susan Levy, and on the phone with us today is Dorothea Litson, fourth-generation rancher and farmer who lives in the Navajo Nation in Sale and Wheatfields, Arizona, and she is the owner of Litson Ranch. Welcome, Dorothea. Yeah, welcome. It's an honor to uh, be interviewed here. Well, we're super excited to learn all about Litson Ranch and what you do. So before we get started... Please tell us about yourself and your journey with Litson Ranch. Okay, uh, my name is Dorothea Litson, and I'm going to introduce myself in Navajo, and I will not translate it in, in English because it, it means deeper meaning. So first, yat eh mi adonda eya kheha kwadeya those are my clans and I am a Dene woman from the Navajo Nation. I am located in Saley Wheatfields, Arizona, which is um 
about most people will know where Chinle Canyon de Chez, when you look out on the map, it's at the head of the Canyon de Chez. That's where I'm located. Um, so I'm located on the north rim, about 18 miles from there. And so that's where I'm from. And my journey with Litson Ranch, um, I started this uh, Litson Ranch in terms of grass-fed beef business in 2016. I put my business plan together and started venturing into selling meat directly to customers. And um, I can do specialty cuts too if people want that. So that's who I am. That's my journey. And I um, and we're gradually growing um, this little at a time. So. Um, this working little pieces. And so I'm still growing too as well. So thank you. So I've got a question for you. Um, how big is Litson Ranch? Um, it is a family operation. It is a small operation. Like when I say small, it is very small, meaning that um, we run about 25 heads of uh, mama cows and plus the bull that we use to breed. I don't know. I think that sounds pretty big. Um, so I know it's really hard to do ranching and cattle. What's a normal day like? You got to love it. One, it's um, the normal day is uh, we have, like I mentioned, we had before uh, we had like about 50 heads of, of cattle, uh, of, of cows, um, but we had to reduce it because of the drought issue and we had to reduce our herd in half. So that's where it's at. And then any day, um, it is a lot of work, to be honest with you. It's a lot of work. We constantly have to look after the cattle that we have. You know, every every day is a different day as well. Um, it's not the same old routine kind of thing. It's It really is dependent on where the cattle are located and where and but we like for now this summer we've had to so one of the things we do our cattle are now in um on the Cheska mountains on top of the mountain uh, and that is an open range so that one requires a lot more um to look after our cattle on the on an everyday basis uh, we have to either drive up there ride horses um, any time of the day, saddle up and making sure um, they're all grazing where they're supposed to be grazing. Um, so that, that's a little bit different and challenging when it's an open range because there's other, there's other livestock that intermix and, and things like that. So, so that one is, uh, we, that one really requires us to look after the cattle and but thank god it's that way in you know in the summer because um my children are out of school so they're constantly a part of the whole process as well um looking over the cattle so that's how um that's that's what we use we use a lot of horseback riding to um look after our cattle um and so so that's what we do, and then it and then it depends, like I said, and like this year, early on in March, April, and and May, that whole port, that whole season, right there within three months, um, they were lo- our cattle were located in the in in the lower range, and which was which is about five miles south of Dene College, and. And that's our winter grazing area in that region. And in that region, we had less rain. So we had to literally haul water because our windmill that we depend on, you know, broke down. And then we had to wait on on our tribe to fix it and fix it. Um, it took like after, you know, it broke down in March and it was finally fixed on the latter part of May. So that whole time period, we actually had to depend on hauling water every other day. To um, So we went through, within one week, we went through like 3,000 to 4,000 gallons of water a week that we were hauling. 
That is a lot of work. So I know when you were talking about the open, I think you said it was open grazing, right? Yeah. So so our ranch, a portion of it, um, there are some open grazing area and there's some um, customary use um, range management areas. So in the wintertime, we're located, you know, in the lower level where um, we have a customary use, which is all fenced in and it has some cross fences and stuff. And then there's another region that we use in the fall time. Um, that's all fenced in and crossed. It's really in the summer um, that we have an open range. And then everywhere else on the Navajo Nation is pretty much open range. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I know when I was looking at your website, you were talking about or you had written about sustainability and conservation practices. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? In our conservation practices, we use the seasonal grazing. Um, we rotate our cattle um, throughout the year. Just as I've mentioned, we have winter grazing area and we have a fall grazing area and then a summer grazing area. So in those regions, they're, they're in those regions um, in the wintertime. In the, in the wintertime, they graze on at least, I want to say, 11,000 acres. So... And that one is pretty fenced in, so they graze on in that area from pretty much from October to to March. Well, actually, I would say October to uh, June in that region when we move our cattle like in rotation. And then from May through the, the end of August, not May, I'm sorry, from June to the end of August, we will have them up up in the Cheska Mountains um, in that region. And then then from September into, into October, we have a, another, another area that we use for our fall grazing, and that's where we also put our cattle there. So, so we allow our land to rest in each, in each area. And like I said, the open range one is really hard to do. Um, the summer where we're located, like in, I would say our elevation is like 7,000 and that's where our cattle roam in the summertime. And so that one is really difficult to do because it's open range, but we're able to manage um, how we manage that is, like I said, um, we have to constantly um, look over our cattle and, and um, try to, push them to different location in different regions within that open range. That's how we um, use the conservation practices. And then the other conservation practice in, in we've done is we've done a lot of erosion um, controls that we put in. Um, I would say like right now we've, we've put in at least a little over probably like close to 80 erosion controls in our in in the regions that we use and that is like <laughs> that is a constant work um and then and then the other places that we do uh, we we have to like these fence areas um especially in the where we graze for fall um we constantly in all areas we constantly have to look at our fence make sure they're tight make sure they're not cut and when they are we have to like um maintenance do a lot of maintenance on that well i know you're doing a lot to save the land and make it a better place than it was um where do you sell your beef is it any place in phoenix i sell my beef directly to customers so i do um go out there like um on the fourth weekend into apache junction the the fourth weekend of each uh, of each month i'm out there the fourth weekend yeah and i and i'm i go out to apache junction in in that area and so i'm able to deliver within the um phoenix uh vicinity um so if you go to litson ranch website and you can order online too and in there, it has the lo it has a location in Apache Junction. I can then pretty much within that area vicinity, I'm able to deliver. Okay. And question for you also: What is your favorite thing that you make with the Litson Ranch beef? What is the favorite thing that I make? Um, oh my gosh! Um, 
I really like to make um, tacos. <laughs> I like to make asada tacos. Okay, that's, that's a good I answer. Like All right. And I assume mm-hmm. you grill it on, uh, you must do a lot of grilling, correct? Yes, I do a lot of grilling. Um, <laughs> that's what I do. Yep. Okay. That's really delicious. All right. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I like to share the fact that, you know, as we're, I, I encourage everybody to buy local and, you know, and, and, uh, and then to understand, you know, sometimes people will say, oh gosh, this is a lot more pricier or whatnot, but really to think about it and to sustain our ranchers and farmers, um, it it's locally grown and you know where the beef is coming from they have a history to it and and um and we work hard at trying to produce the flavorful beef that we have um and um you're more than welcome to look at the operation itself how it's you know, if you want to know more and, and we just, and our biggest intent is to localize our food, to have access to quality food, um, um, and staying local and staying true to our way of life. Like in my, for me as a Diné person, I'm a fourth generation, um, rancher in, I ventured into this and so it's been it's been a great journey for us. It um it allows us to really work with our youth for the next generation. Our children are involved because Litson Ranch is really a family operation. Um my mom and my dad has five children. They have two boys and three girls, and they have 13 grandchildren, and we're all involved in in this whole operation piece of it, Um, particularly with his daughters, us three daughters and his grandchildren. We're really, really involved in making sure that this land is sustained over time. We're located on the trust land, meaning that the the federal government has, you know, (laughs) it's a reservation. That's why it's a trust land. Um, but but we never look at it like that. Um, we look at it as if as it's our land because um, as Indigenous people, my, our great grandfathers and our great grandmothers really um, took a lot. You know, you know the history about the long walk and after they returned, they were given pieces of land and they t- took care of it. It's been there for a long, long time, and and we don't see it as it belonging to the federal government. We really look at it as um, it is our land, and so it is our promise to our children for the next generation to keep it and to make it better so that they have the same opportunity that um, we were raised as my siblings, my, my sisters and my brothers, in this way of life, um, it's been in this way of life um, for a long time. I'm so fortunate to have my grandparents and my parents to, to be vision, to have the vision to and to believe in this way of life and as, as a part of their culture. And that was their bread and butter once upon a time. And it continues to be that way for us. And and um, and that's who we are we're really sincere about how we produce our cattle and how we work with our animals and how we take care of our land. And that's so you have to, you have to manage the land in order to provide flavorful beef and, and how we've journeyed through from, um, from I'm talking about only my, just my father and my mother, let alone back in when they got married, they started off with, seven heifers and then over time my dad has introduced different breeds because he wanted a large frame animal to provide better beef and to to have that quality meat in them so we went through um over time to have that large frame 
so that they have they're muscular and they have flavorful meat. Um, so we've introduced several breeding system over time um, in our herd for that reason, and we continue to have um, crossbreds. We're not so into pure like um, <clears throat> black Angus or anything. All all the whole time into this day, we're more into cross crossbreeding. Um, so we went from like I said the seven heifers, and then we went to we introduced Brahmas, and then from there we introduced the limousine. Then we introduced Charley, and then we were introducing um, Black Angus, Red Angus. They're they're all cross in that in that way. So that's where we're at, and the reason we're doing that is because if it is pure, I don't, you know, to this arid land that we have um, to have that resiliency to being able to adapt to our location and our area, um, that that's crucial for us. That's how we've growing over time. You've definitely done an amazing job in, in growing the ranch. So I need to know, and finally, how can listeners learn more about Litson Ranch and how can they contact you? Is it a website or social media? There are many multiple outlets that you can reach us. We have our own website and um, on that website, it is at litsonranch.com, and we have a store online, which is right there. If you click on the button, if you go to our Facebook page, it's a, we also have a button page if you want it to order, and it'll take you right directly to our store online, so where you can order, um, you have that leverage to do that, um, to order online, so... So and it and when you order online, it'll tell you like the delivery where we can deliver um, the meat. And then if you're in the Phoenix area, it's usually the fourth week um, in Apache Junction. That area we're able to deliver in that area too. So so that's how. And and then you also can call us at nine two eight three four nine zero six two zero. Or you can also email us at litsonranch at gmail.com. Perfect. That is a lot of great ways to reach you. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day on the ranch today, Dorothea. Thank you. Yes, thank you, too. Thank you for listening to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and 90.7 FM KRDP. Our executive producer is Susan Levy, sound engineer is Javier Quiroga, and our host is Lanasha Puati. We hope you will tune in again next week. If you have any questions, please reach us at nativetalkac at listen2krdp.com.